The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. You're listening to the Master Wildlife Filmmaking Podcast, Episode 25. Nate Dappen is a biologist, photographer, and filmmaker based in San Diego, California. He's a fellow of the Explorers Club and an affiliate of the International League of Conservation Photographers. Nate studied sexual and ontogenetic color evolution in the Abetha wall lizard in grad school at the University of Miami, earning his PhD in biology in 2012. Since then, he's been making science, natural history, and adventure documentaries full-time. Nate co-founded Day's Edge Productions with Neil Lossin also in 2012. Their client list includes National Geographic, the Smithsonian Channel, the National Science Foundation, Terramatta Factual Studios, WWF, PBS, NPR, and REI, to name just a very few. And their list of film festival official selections and awards is, well, just way too vast to even begin to read out. Nate, thanks so much for taking the time out to be on the Master Wildlife Filmmaking Podcast. Really appreciate it. How are you doing this morning? Doing great. So excited to be on. Thank you. Awesome. Well, as you know, the podcast is all about letting listeners know about how you kind of broke into the industry, you know, get some advice from you, uh, some of the trials and tribulations you've been through as a wildlife filmmaker. But let's start right at the beginning. Uh, What was it that led you along your wildlife filmmaking career? Well, I think for many of us in the filmmaking industry, it was not a direct path. Um, As an undergrad, I studied biology and art. Um, so I, I was a pre-med student and then uh, also got a, a degree in biology and, and, and also in art where I focused on photography. Um, and then when I decided to go back to graduate school, to um, I, I did a PhD in biology. Um, and, and that's sort of what I thought I wanted to do. But on the side, I was making extra money shooting a variety of different things, um, weddings, uh, magazine articles, all sorts of different kinds of stuff. Um, and while I was in graduate school, I met another biologist, a guy named Neil Lawson, who's now my business partner. And we just had a bunch in common. We were on a field course in Costa Rica. So we spent, you know, I think it was like six weeks together talking biology, talking about photography. Um, and we just started doing projects for fun. And um, that was right around the time that 5D Mark IV came out, uh, 5D Mark II came out, which was the first um, digital SLR that started shooting high quality video. And all of a sudden, a tool that I really knew how to use well um, shot awesome video. And so we, we made a little absolutely terrible film um, just for fun. And at the time, Neil had this National Geographic grant. And so it went up, on the, went up on the National Geographic website. And at the time, you have to remember that like there were no films on the web, no science films on the web. This was like one of the early ones. And so it got a lot of attention, even though it was awful. 
and um, I won't tell you the names of these early films. So they're still, they're <laughs> so still we, online. We can't somewhere. go back and look for them. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're they're permanently up somewhere. Um, so we made another one, and then we made another one, and and we submitted to a few film festivals, and again shorts were still not really a thing back then so we were winning film festivals despite these films not being super high quality um and and as we started finishing up our phds we sort of asked each other like hey like this is this is fun we're not terrible at it um let's let's do it and um and so we decided not to pursue traditional postdocs and we went sort of just full speed into into media creation uh, in the beginning, we did a lot of projects that were both photography uh, and video, and we did a lot of just only photography projects, and we still do those occasionally, but I would say now 98% of, of our projects and our income are from film production, and it's been that way now for about eight years. And you've really, your, your company has really started to grow, because I know you have employees now. It's not just you and Neil. You have, is there four of you, four or five of you? Yeah, there's four, and it's been that way for a while. Yeah, so we 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 uh, like four years ago had started hiring other people, and we've gone sort of fluctuated between deciding to get big or to get small. And we're we're a small production company, but um, but yeah, I mean we're 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 a busy production company now, and and um, it's looking like we're going to be hiring, you know, more people in the in the year to come. So so um so yeah, I mean, it, it's uh it's it's funny to look back on those early years. Um, and I think it's tough when you're when you're beginning in this career, because there's no, there's no roadmap. Um, there's, there, there's more roadmaps now than there were back then, but I still think that it's a difficult, it's a difficult path to go into. And there's nobody, very few people at least telling their kids, well, you know, Hey, when you grow up, you could, you could make films about science and nature. Um, so, so it was a challenge and also very fun to sort of discover, discover that path for ourselves. Now you, this, uh, your, your production company has been around for about 10 years. Yeah, we started in 2011. Okay. Um, so nine years, nine years it's, it's been started. And I would say, um, you know, we, we both finished our PhDs in 2012 and that was sort of when not like, I mean, you know, as a graduate student, you make like $18,000 a year, um, you know, uh, uh, like teaching stipends and stuff. So, you know, uh, I would say all of our income has come from media production since, since then. And the first two years were pretty scary. And then uh, eventually we got enough clients that, um, you know, it started to become a pretty normal, normal way of life. Now, I mean, that's fantastic because there's so many people in this industry who find you, I mean, all of us, you know, it, it's one of those industries where, as you said, there's not a roadmap and no one gives you this blueprint and says, well, you just do this in this, in this way. And within six months, you'll be earning money and, and you're off to the races, right? As you say, you had two years of really hard work. And, and I'm sure throughout those two years, there were times where you probably said to each other, what are we doing? Let's go and get real jobs, right? <laughs> but what, just explain a little bit about who your clients are, where you're finding your clients, and how you see that in terms of a, a business model for the future. Yeah, that so that that's changed a lot since we started um and i think part of that was because when we first started our company we were also in front of the camera quite a bit we were in films and i think people in the industry didn't know what to make of us they thought well they were like well are they going to be hosts are, are are they making films are they photographers they didn't know what they were and we cast a pretty wide net in the beginning mostly because we also didn't know where we wanted to go we didn't know what it meant to be a producer we didn't know what it meant to be a filmmaker of sort of any kind um and so we did everything um 
and everything, you know, everything and anything. We were in front of the camera, we were behind the camera, we were, we wrote a lot of grants. Um, and, um, and so throughout those first early years, and I, I also want to say like, we worked really hard those two years and that hasn't changed. I don't think uh, I work any less now than I did back then. I think I have a clear idea and the projects are bigger and there's a little bit more financial security, but we're grinding all the time and, and, and we, we like it. Um, you know, it's, it's a fun grind. Um, and I don't think it's for everybody, um, but if, if you like that grind and you like the excitement of creating new projects, it's a wonderful job. Um, but now, nowadays, um, our clients, we have tons of different clients. So we work a lot with NGOs, conservation and science education NGOs, um, to produce advocacy films for companies like the World Wildlife Fund, education films for like the Howard Hughes Medical Institute. But we also do a lot of broadcast films for Smithsonian Channel, PBS, National Geographic. Um, you know, those, those kinds of companies. And then we do everything in between, you know, we work on short web series for, for, for web magazines, um, and for news outlets like the Atlantic or biographic. Um, you know, I, I, you know, we're, we're, we do all, we do branded films for companies like NRS and REI. So we, we do a lot of different things. And, and like I said, in the beginning, our strategy was really to cast a wide net and, um, within that net, we only sort of fish for things that we want. So, it's not like we're, we're trolling for everything. We don't have a lot of buy, buy catch or anything like that. Um, but, but we, we have a really wide net and then, and then a significant portion of our projects come from grants. So we, we write grants, um, to places like the national science foundation, the Templeton foundation, um, national geographic society. And, um, our, our favorite projects are probably the grant funded stuff because we don't really have a boss when those get funded, we can do whatever we want. Um, and I think sort of our proudest, projects have come from working really from the ground up with scientists um, uh, on, on, on those grant funded projects. Yeah. And of course, having the scientific background that you have, you have that experience of writing grants because most PhDs are, you know, probably, I don't know, 20% of the time you're writing grants, right? Trying to get the money into to pursue a PhD. What advice would you have? You know, I get a lot of questions from people about grant writing. And a lot of the time, if they're not coming from a scientific background, they have no idea how to write a film grant, a grant for, you know, whether it's just a small amount of money to subsidize a, a film or a huge amount of money to get an entire production made. Is there any advice that you have that, I mean, it's a big question, I know. Uh, grants are all different. But if you had to kind of sum up something to do with grants in terms of giving people some advice, what might that be? Yeah, I mean, the grant world is huge, you know, there's lots of different kinds of grants. And, and you know, I, I think I got a lot of grant training um, as a graduate student. I still think that those are a little bit different from some of the film grants that we write. And, and um, I feel like I've gotten so much better at it in the last eight years working on film projects, because I, I just know more every time I work on a new grant, I gain knowledge. And so I, I would say I'm much more equipped now than I was eight years ago to write a lot of grants. Um, my biggest recommendation for people is that you shouldn't, shouldn't think that you've got to do these things alone. If you're writing a grant, try to find somebody, try to find resources, people who have submitted to that specific solicitation or the organization, try to find people who've had experience with this, ask if they're willing to share their grants because a lot of the times, you know, you start writing and things might sound good to you. Um, but for people who are reviewing these things, they have a certain expectation because they're used to seasoned writers submitting these things. And so, for me, whenever I get the opportunity to submit a new grant, 
um, and it's one that I haven't, it's, an, it's a solicitation or, you know, uh, an organization that I haven't submitted to before, I try and find somebody who's willing to share a previous grant to just get an idea about tone, to get an idea about content um, and style. And then, and then I try to adopt those things into how I'm going to write those grants. So that's, that's definitely one of the recommendations I would give. Um, I'd also recommend make sure you're sharing your 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 drafts with people you know i i um i i'm like i said i'm i'm not a good writer um and i've gotten way better as an adult but i i think i'm i'm a pretty poor writer i, I don't see a lot of the 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 details I, I i misspell things i have grammatical problems uh in in all the documents that i put together but I, i've got people i can share those documents with and that just makes a huge difference when reviewers read things and they see those kinds of mistakes um, it does affect your chances. And so those are the biggest things. Um, and, and I, you know, grants are like looking up. I always feel like we, we, we've got a couple of big ones we submit every year and they're just so, they're so time consuming. And it feels like you're at the bottom of a cliff looking up, but you know, it really is just, you know, give yourself time and it's like one, one foot in front of the other and just slowly work your way up it. Um, and and uh, so, yeah, I mean, I, I do think there's a lot of great opportunities out there um, and if you are if you are a good writer, um, I certainly think that you know you have an advantage in that in that side of things. Yeah, I think that's great. <clears throat> Excuse me, great advice because, as you say, I think it's not. It may seem when you first are doing a grant that to reach out to people who have already had those grants doesn't seem that seems almost counterintuitive. It doesn't seem like something that would um, be worth doing. <clears throat> But that's great advice coming from someone like yourself who has done so many. And also, as you say, the editor, getting someone to just edit. Because the, the thing is, we're all so close to our projects. And when, you, when you're that close, you just sometimes just can't see the wood for the, for the trees. So um, it can be yeah. hard to... I, I think that's true. And I'll just add one more thing. I mean, my experience has been, I feel like one of the things that most drew me to this career and... I take the most pleasure out of is just that the, this is a community of people who I think are very, um, very open and generous. I feel like every time I've asked for help with very few exceptions, people have given it to me. Um, and, and, and like, you know, so I, I think, I think people should take that to heart that if you're asking for help, you know, you'll find somebody with experience who can share that with you. And, and, um, yeah. You know, that's a perfect segue. Because um, one of the things of, you know, like when I think of you, I think of someone who is, who has really embraced this industry incredibly well, right? And I say this just from, I met you just a few years ago at a film festival. And I remember you coming up to me and saying, hi, and introducing yourself. And we got on, we chatted and, and it was fantastic. And it was just, you know, th there's, there's people you meet who are exceptionally friendly and open and you are one of those people. Right. And I see it with, you know, I see that though with your interactions that you have with people in the industry and the way that you are in the industry. One, you guys as a whole, as, as Day's Edge, have been extremely prolific in terms of your films. And they're really good films. It's not that you're just churning stuff out because of speed, but you're, you're, you're making a lot of stuff and really good stuff. But also you are out there in the industry helping other people incredibly with like the media labs. One of the things I, I know that you do is you, you are part of the media labs. Now, I don't know a whole lot about this other than did, did you set these media labs up or were they already going and you came into them? Tell us a little bit about what you do with the media labs. I know at the International Wildlife Film Festival at Jackson Hole, 
possibly other places as well. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. First, thanks so much. I, I appreciate all those kind of things you said. That's that's really, really, really generous of you. Um, I, I, I um, The Media Lab, so when Neil and I first started making films, we were one of the few, we were a couple of the few, you know, things have changed a lot now. Now I think in the science world, the idea of doing outreach is really important. You know, like it's not looked down upon. Back in like Carl Sagan days, you know, people scientists didn't respect him because he was the host of a television show. I think that those days are over now. I think now um, it's important for a lot of scientists to do outreach. And I think that it is appreciated um, and becoming more appreciated within departments uh, and across the entire field. But at that time, when we first started, it was still definitely a period of transition. And Neil and I were two of sort of the only people that we knew who were doing outreach and were interested in it. But it was also, you know, at the same time, you've got your NSF grants and they've got these broader impact sections where you're supposed to do meaningful outreach and the broader impacts of your grant have to be weighed as much as the intellectual merit of them. And so we, we thought, well, you know, what would be cool is if we started teaching scientists how to do better outreach. So we first started doing these workshops back in 2000, I think it was like 2000, end of 2012. We didn't really even know much about the industry, but we knew a little bit about storytelling um, and we certainly knew how to use cameras at the time. And so we... So we started running these workshops for graduate students and other scientists, um, mostly biologists. Um, and then a few years later, uh, we, we'd done this a number of times, and a few years later, um, uh, the program where we met um, uh, in Costa Rica, it's a, it's a sort of a, this, this crash course for ecologists um, in Costa Rica, they, they hired us to come down and, and start, um, it's called OTS, the Organization for Tropical Studies, they hired us to come down and, and develop a a science communication workshop for, for OTS. And so we did that. And then that was still, again, graduate students, but it was definitely a lot more in-depth and we developed some more curriculum. Um, and, and we did this three or four times a year uh, for, for various organizations, for various departments. You know, we flew to Duke. We, you know, we taught at the University of Miami and Rutgers. Um, and then um, I was at the International Wildlife Film Festival and I was talking with Rob Whitehair back when he was still in, um, in, in Missoula. And he, he, he said, hey, like, I know you guys have been teaching these things. Would you guys be interested in, in trying to, like, develop something with us to, to create a workshop? And so Neil and I worked with the International Wildlife Film Festival to create uh, sort of the workshop that we would have wanted when we were first starting to teach all the things that you need to know to, 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 to sort of succeed in this industry. Because um, it had taken us a long time to learn stuff. And not that we haven't learned a ton since then. Um, but but we, so we, we worked with the International Wildlife Film Festival to do that. And we basically we were like, okay, let's, let's try and make the best workshop in the world for this thing. Probably wasn't, but it was really good. And we got, you know, like 300 applicants from across the United States. We, um, you know, we were able to get funding. The, H, the Howard Hughes Medical Institute funded it. They paid for everyone to come in. And um, with IWFF, we, we, we ran this awesome workshop. At least I thought it was awesome. And we did that for a couple of years there. And we've since taken that workshop and brought it to Jackson Wild, which, you know, as, as you know, is sort of the film festival in the United States um, for, for wildlife filmmaking. Um, and so for the last two years, we've, we've taught it at, the, the, at Jackson Wild. Um, and again, it's, we're ju really just trying to create this program that brings in, you know, the most talented young people so that they, they not only learn what, learn important things, um, it's like a hands-on workshop, not only so that they learn what they need to know 
to succeed in the industry, but also so they build really meaningful relationships, both with their peers uh, and with industry professionals. So we, we try to bring in executives, we try to bring in experienced filmmakers who already have their foot in the door uh, or who are the decision makers. Um, so that they'll recognize their faces when they come. Because one of the things that we found was when we first started coming to these festivals and pitching our ideas is that people weren't listening to us. And it's not because, you know, they didn't respect us as people. It's because they didn't respect us as professionals yet, because you have to put your time in. Um, and the earlier you can get that face time, the earlier you can develop those relationships, the earlier you'll, your ideas, I think, will be taken seriously. Um, and, and so, you know, that's definitely one of the big parts with these workshops. We, we try to we try to just help people understand that like you're not going to come in and make a planet Earth. You're going to grind and grind and grind, and then maybe you'll get a short film off the ground, and then maybe you'll get a chance to work on a broadcast film, and you'll get your own broadcast film, and then eventually, you know, you'll get another one, and you know, and then maybe you'll get a series. But it's it, it's a, it takes time, and it takes developing real relationships, um, not just fake ones. I I feel like I used to think that networking was a dirty word. But um, but now I, I feel like I love these events. I go, I see my friends and I work with my friends and they want to work with me and I want to work with them. So we're excited when we come up with an idea that we can do together. And I think that that's the core of what I love about this industry. And that's sort of what we're trying to build with these with these workshops. We're trying to build a bunch of cohorts of people who love each other and and, and are committed to all the same things that, that the industry stands for. No, I, I think it's fantastic because it is that... Uh... It, just like you were saying, there was no blueprint for you when you were starting. And what you're doing is you're almost creating a blueprint with these, with these labs and giving people a starter and teaching them about the networking side. And as you say, um, you know, I think networking gets a bad, I mean, you've probably been to them too, you know, business networking lunches and things where you are um, thrown in a room with a bunch of people for a couple of hours and you're running around with business cards trying to chat. And it feels like that's what it's going to be like. But actually, as you say, it's really like a big family. When you go there, you meet people who are your peers and people that you have utmost respect for, you know their work. And over time, they get to know you and your work. And, and that's how the relationships work. And, and I think it's, the media labs are a fantastic way to get people in the door of that that kind of industry. And we talk a lot on the podcast about how important festivals are just in general, about having that FaceTime there, being there, even if you don't have a film. And if you can't afford to go, you know, volunteering, there's lots of ways to get in. Tell us a little bit about how, how do people get into the Media Labs? Is it, a, um, is it like getting... Um, you know, uh, being sponsored to get in there? Is it, you, do you apply and you're picked from a group based on, you know, your, uh, what you have to offer? What, what's the, the way into that? Yeah, um, we, usually with the Media Lab, we announce, we announce when applications are open and you apply and it's very competitive. Um, you know, last, well, this year with COVID, we had a few less, but it was still, you know, I think it was like 230 applicants for 14, 12 spots. Um, but you apply and then, and then, um, and, and then, uh, there's a selection committee. Um, I've been a part of it a few years and this last year and, and the year before I wasn't, I wasn't a part of it. Um, so it's, you know, it, but, but yeah, you basically apply and, and you get in, but I, I you know, I, I, I just want to reiterate what you said about the festivals. Like I, I can't, I can't, I cannot emphasize enough how important those festivals are. Like I, 
you know, the fest, you know, our workshop now is at Jackson Wild, and Jackson Wild has invested so much into improving the Media Lab as well and giving additional opportunities to people in the Media Lab and also creating other programs that aren't part of the Media Lab but are separate and, 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 and uh, uh, alternative ways for people who maybe don't have the resources to go to the festival, pay to go to the festival to get in. So Jackson Wild is just an incredible organization. Um, and yeah, so... Uh, you know, every, every, we'll, we'll probably open up applications again in like April, uh, April, maybe, maybe March, March or April. And I'm um, fingers crossed that COVID can uh, get under control. Cause I, I really miss these in person. Uh, the, the, the online version of the media lab was great and went much better than I had expected, but it's no replacement for sort of face-to-face -face interaction. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's been a it's been a tough year in so many ways. And obviously, the festivals have done a great job of pulling all this together in a virtual way. Uh -huh. You know, I had a film in the festivals this year. And, you know, we made one festival, uh, wild and scenic at the beginning of the year. And it was fantastic to actually be with a crowd of people that watched the film. <laughs> and then everything else was a washout from that point on. So there yeah. we go. But a bit the fact that everyone was able to pull it together and actually do virtual festivals and still keep them going rather than just pulling the pin and saying, you know what, we can't do anything. Um, I think it was a success from that point of view. No um, now I, I want to talk about switch gears into equipment because one of the things that I think anyone who follows you on social media will know is that you've got, I, I see bits of equipment coming up now and again, all, all this new, new equipment coming up, There'll be a, uh, and I don't know the names of them, but there'll be that little, uh, like a Rover car with a, you know, camera gimbal on top of it and uh, mini kind of remote control. And more recently, your drone, your uh, FPV, your fast flying kind of, I, I don't know what that's called, like a sports drone with a camera on it. It looks fantastic. And the stuff I've seen you do flying through trees on coastline and what have you. Tell us a little bit. I mean, you obviously love new gear. And this stuff can play a massive role in making really good shows. But at the same time, it can be a pain in the backside, right? Yeah. Keeping track of all this gear and making sure you know how to use it. So, so yeah, tell us first about the drone you've been flying. Uh, so the drone, you know, we, I, we've, I, I love flying drones. Every time I want to shoot flying a drone, I pinch my mind. I'm like, I can't believe that this is, I'm getting paid. You're per right. It's, it's like, it's this job. is ridiculous. It's so cool. So fun. I've always been into toys my whole life and um, filmmaking is like, you know, it's like, you know, it's just, it's like Christmas alcohol for an alcoholic. Right? It's just, you got to have more <laughs> of it and you, it's crazy. Um, and, and, you know, I think, I think different production companies take different strategies. Some people, they, they, they rent the gear. We've definitely gone the purchasing route. We own it. We rent it to ourselves. I'll get into that. But, but um, the, the, the FPV stuff, I, I found, I, I found this guy a, a while ago named Johnny FPV. And he made a couple of videos and I, at the time, now FPV is going mainstream and everyone's doing it and there's lots of great people. But when I first saw Johnny FPV stuff, I couldn't believe what he was doing. I had, I, I, I couldn't believe it. I thought it was impossible kind of stuff. And I, you know, I'd been in the industry already for seven years and watching people do planet earth and, you know, nothing that anybody had done aerial stuff was even remotely close to what this guy was doing. So I tried to find out what he did and I found out he had just a little camera, this like a drone this size with a GoPro on it. And I, I couldn't understand how he was doing it. So I followed him for a while. And then we uh, were developing this, this, um, 
this television series right now and we thought how cool it would be to, to build sort of this FPV style into the, into the sort of the DNA of the show. And um, so I... <laughs> Someone's got to fly it. Why not you? Well, I reached out, <laughs> I reached out to Johnny um, and, 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 and a few other pilots and it turned out that it was very, very expensive um, because it's, it's just such a hard skill to learn. It's not like flying other drones. Right. It's extremely technical. Um, you're flying at, at crazy speeds. Uh, there's no GPS system or balancing. When you take your hands off of the controllers, everything falls apart. Everything crashes. And, you know, so, so you, know, I, you have to practice on a simulator for a few months before you can actually take your drone out. And then the first time you take your drone out, the first five or six times you crash it and break completely. So you have to learn how to do soldering to fix things. And, and so it's been, you know, for me, it was just, it was just really fun learning a new, to a new, a new thing. And I, I really invested pretty heavily in every day I practice in the simulator for 30 minutes and that for two months or so. And then, and then finally when I got the drone out, I would take the drone out for 30 minutes every day and, and fly it. Um, and I was lucky that that happened during COVID because all I could go to all the parks and there are no people. It's not the kind of drone you can fly around people. I mean, it's, right. it's crazy. It's very difficult to fly. Um, is this a, is it a sports drone that's actually made for racing? It's a racing drone. Yeah. Right. It's a racing drone that you put a, a GoPro on and then you use a program called real steady to smooth out the footage. Cause it's got all these micro vibrations. Um, and nowadays people are pushing the limits. They're putting, they're putting, you know, reds and Aries on the, on like bigger versions of these. I mean, there's a couple of guys who are just, uh, Beverly Hills aerials is doing some insane stuff. Um, Johnny FPV is still just totally pushing the envelope with what he's doing. Um, so, you know, I, I think this stuff is going to be like the next 10 years, people are going to see it everywhere. Um, but we are also going to be doing it. Um, probably just not at, at their level. I don't think I'll ever be able to you, learn. I was yeah. going to say, you're ready to put your red on the drone. <laughs> I've got a few more years before I'm going to try that. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. I mean, um, it's, but, it's astonishing we're in this place. You said, you know, it's incredible. You were watching as someone in the industry who knows film you were watching and then you couldn't believe that it was a, a GoPro, you know, and that just shows where we're at. You know, something that comes up a lot is gear questions and you know, what gear should I get? I want to make it look like planet earth. And, but what's astonishing is just small cameras with the right conditions can look so incredibly good. Yeah, I totally agree with that. Um, and I, I think like if you're like me and Neil for us, we get really excited about, you know, the bit rate, the dynamic range, the massive sensor, you know, we, we like it when our files are so big that, you know, it's like jamming up your computer. It's exciting to be able to push the stuff, but I don't think you need any of that stuff. I feel like you can get a cheaper camera. You know, I, we, we still shoot a lot of our higher end productions on like a little mirrorless GH5. It's a $3,000 camera and it is unbelievable the quality of this thing or, or the new A7S3 that's, that's just come out is you know, it's like three grand, three, $3,500. And it is unbelievable what you can do with it. Um, at the same time, I think it's, it's not just about gear. It's also sort of a financial decision for us. So we, you know, we bought, we bought a red, we bought like a, the new, the new um, Canon C300 Mark, Mark three. And, and, and um, we've got, you know, bigger drones and stuff like that. And we've made back way more money by renting those to ourselves then we spent on them. And so it's definitely a source of income for us. And it's also when you're working with sort of higher end clients, uh, broadcasters, they want to know that your, your cameras can shoot, uh, you know, with certain specs. Um, and so, so that, that definitely makes a difference for getting sort of a higher end client. But I think if you're working mostly for, for web clients, 
that stuff doesn't matter at all. Um, and, and, and I think, you know, if you expose your stuff right and you have a, you can color, color grade it all right, it's hard to tell the difference between a red and, and like, you know, a Canon 5D Mark IV. Yeah, I mean, there's so much compression on internet video. <clears throat> Doesn't matter what you're shooting on to most of the time. Uh, once it's compressed down for going online, you lose pretty much everything that you ever invested totally. into the sensor in the first place. So, yeah. And if, and if you don't have the bug, you know, that's good for you. I feel like I'd be a lot richer if I, <laughs> if I, you know, if I put that money in like a 401k or something. Right. <laughs> right. Absolutely. Well, that, that's yeah. interesting to hear. Now the, the little uh, RV Rover, um, what was that? Uh, or RC Rover, I should say. I don't know. What, what was that called? Yeah, it's called, a, it's called the, the Trexo Moco car. Um, it's from a Turkish company. Um, and we're, Neil and I are working on a wildlife film, um, a broadcast film about wildlife in Miami. And um, a lot of the animals won't let us get close, but they will let us put like a, you know, a, a camera there. And, and we're shooting it all on red. Um, and so, so the only way to get a red camera on there that's, you know, close to these animals um, is, you know, with one of these little vehicles. And so, you know, we put the red on a movie on Moco car. One of us controls the Moco car and then the other one of us use the, the mimic, which is this amazing contraption that basically it's like a ghost, you know, like any these little handles where you've got an LCD, you, you turn it and the movie turns You've wow. got a little focus wheel and stuff. So you can just drive it right up close to peacocks or, you know, iguanas or stuff. And, and it's got this, you know, perfectly smooth, incredible motion. It's like, yeah, it's, you know, it's, it's an unbelievable time to be a filmmaker if you're into gear. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. No, the gear is, it is astonishing. But as you say, you've got to have a very large bank account or, or as I always say, you know, if you, if you've got a way to pay for it, you know, if you're buying it because you're making that money back making films then fantastic, right. or you just got to be rich to start with. So one or the other. <laughs> exactly. Now, thinking of, you know, I mean, there's obviously lots of technical issues that can go wrong, but there's, there's issues all the way through that, you know, when we talk about making films, um, things go wrong all the time. I mean, you know, when I was hosting right through to being a camera person, all the different things that, that the struggles you have to overcome uh, when making a production, whether it's environmental problems or issues with yourself getting sick or, or just, you know, things going wrong. If you, can you tell us about maybe one of the biggest problems that you've ever had on production that has, has, you know, affected the film to some degree? Well, Boy, I mean, like, we've had so many big problems. Like, you know, I've gotten Giardia, I've got elephantiasis, like, on shoots, I've gotten the flu on shoots, I've gotten dysentery on shoots, you know, being sick on, like, remote shoots where I, I, got, I got dysentery in, in, um, in, in Nepal, in this, like, this incredibly remote part of Nepal. And, you know, we just had to travel for, like, just brutal hours on horrible roads with no toilet you know anybody who's had dysentery knows that it's a real bummer um it's just an awful <laughs> an awful experience when you're not just in a nice hotel room um so that that really derailed my experience but technical stuff goes wrong like you know we were just on a shoot in new mexico our drone broke um i i've almost been thrown in jail a couple of times for flying drones where you know you're not supposed to in foreign countries um you know we've 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 had equipment stolen. Um, we've had our car broken into only in the United States, never anywhere international have we ever had anything stolen, but we've had multiple things stolen in the United States. 
Um, so um, that's definitely a thing. I'm just trying to think of and that, and then well, I mean, the thing about that is if you're you're on location and you have gear stolen out of your car, what I mean, what happened there? Were, were you on location actually and during a production? Yeah, yeah. So the the big one happened in San Francisco. Um, somebody broke into the back of the car and pulled out the only backpack that would, you know, filled with big Pelican cases and stuff. So they couldn't get the Pellies out, but they pulled one backpack out that had about 15 grand worth of stuff in it. Um, luckily, we had another camera in another bag, so we were able to finish the shoot. But, you know, we lost a bunch of lenses and it was, you know, a big, a big loss. And that's, that's a perfect example of why you have to have insurance in this industry. Um, you know, we lost our deductible, which was about two grand, but we at least got back the rest of the, the year. Um, so, yeah, that's a big, a big bummer. Um, you know, I, I think unlike a lot of kinds of filmmaking, documentary and wildlife, wildlife in particular, um, you know, you just, you just never know what's going to happen. You can't plan for things to happen. You do your best to plan and then everything else is improvised. Um, and so many times you improvise and you do your best and it's, you know, not what you wanted or not what you expected. And other times you get the incredible stuff or things that you didn't expect that were amazing. Um, so you kind of just have to embrace the uncertainty of it all. If you're a warrior, it's not a good job for you. Yeah. yeah I don't know. I'm well said for sure. <laughs> we have <laughs> stuff going on all the time, all the time. It's just, you know, it happens. Yeah. Yeah, right. yeah, for sure. Well, and then, you know, what I always come back to is that when, when you're making shows for TV, for, for whatever, wherever they're going, you know, we always see as the, as the viewer, this finished, polished uh, production. We don't see the giardia. We don't see the dysentery. We don't see all of that stuff. That's a program. That's a reality show right yeah. there, which is why, you know, the end of planet earth, that 10 minutes of, you know, elephants trampling cameras and things like that. It's so interesting to watch because the behind the scenes is the reality of it, of, of making shows. Um, but it really, you know, I, I don't think I've ever been on a shoot where something didn't go wrong that, that affected it one way or another. Yeah, that's right. I think you just have to, and for sure, one of the things that we've got, just gotten used to is we just have contingencies for everything. You know, we always bring multiple cameras and multiple bags, multiple hard drives and multiple bags. You know, we, we give ourselves extra days when we can afford it. And, and um, you know, you, you still get crazy things. We had this one, we had this one experience. So we, our very first broadcast film, we were, we did this uh, show. It was about, it was a show about speciation for, for the Smithsonian Channel. And we were going to all these super remote islands in the Solomon Islands. Like, you know, uh, basically any, any, any kid under 20 or so had never seen somebody white. Um, you know, they cried when they saw Neil. Um, wow. they were, you know, it was a very, very remote kind of place. And, um, we went with, um, our appearance releases, but nobody spoke English. Nobody could read or write. And the idea, the legal ideas in the releases, there were not, they just were not laws that were, um, uh, they were not laws or rules or ideas that meant anything to, to the people in these cultures. And I, and I say that because they had a, just a different set of, of, of ideas and there was, it was like tribal communities. So the tribal leaders were the ones who were going to have to get, so we, we got things signed. Uh, so we, so we got, we got our version of the release signed. And then when we brought it to Smithsonian channel, their lawyers wanted a different release. So they wanted us to get this release. So we had to send uh, we had to send a person back to these islands 
and get video releases. I mean, like this is like remote stuff. Like you fly for two days to get to, you know, to get to Honiara, and then you, you take a boat for three days to get to another island and another boat. And they had to go back to all the communities that we filmed in and get the tribal leader to give video verbal to like basically repeat what people, you know, repeat what these lawyers wanted them to say. It was just, those are other crazy things, you know, just huge amounts of resources for things you can't plan on. So, you know, fun, fun stuff to deal with, but also, right. you know, crazy stuff. But, but how frustrating when you're at that point as well of like your show almost being there yeah. and then you got to do that just to get it on TV. Yeah. yeah incredible. Sure. <laughs> Gosh, well, hey, another thing is personal side of things, right? You, you do a lot of traveling and I know you've got a beautiful young daughter who is how old now? She's two and a half. Two and a half. Yeah. You've got a beautiful wife, family at home, and here you are making films. You know, it's one of the hard things. I've got two young kids. And, you know, one of the hardest things for me is leaving my family and going off and traveling and doing these things for people on watching the video. That's what these little hearts are on the back here. <laughs> these are hearts that are, that are folded up and put inside my clothes, uh, you know, oh, when I travel. So and when I, when I get there, I open up my clothes and things start dropping out, which is fantastic. And I that's keep amazing. But, you know, what, what's it like? You know, you're, you know, things change all the time, right? They changed in my life when I had a family. You're, you're, you have a young family. How, how does it affect just the way you work? Because it is, it's just, you know, it's a lot of stresses, both personally and on and work, and you're working all the time. How do you make it all fit, fit together? It's a personal question. You might not want to answer it. So, so sorry yeah. you don't, but. No, I know. I think, I think it's like, uh, it's definitely probably the, the I think at least one of the top top challenges that anybody in our industry who wants to who wants to have this career and and you know, sort of try to do it at a, at a high level and also wants to live a meaningful family life, um, you know my so my wife is actually pregnant again with twins. Congratulations! Congratulations! Yes! Yeah, so, yeah, so wow! Twin girls coming in uh, early 2021, so we'll have three three daughters in the house soon, um, which will shake things up, I'm sure, in ways that I'm not expecting or prepared for but it'll be <laughs> right <great. laughs> yeah yeah um but i think i think you know if you don't have a partner who's supportive from the beginning i don't think that it, it'll work um you know you're going to have to choose one of the other. but i think if you've got a partner who's supportive it's like you said it's it's just um things change and you have to be willing to change as 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 your life changes i, I it certainly has in my life since my daughter has been born i, I think you know, it's not just, it's not just that I'm away from my wife now. Now it's like when I leave all the things that I do, she has to do. Um, and that's just a huge burden to put on, on, on somebody. And so I, I think it's just about, at least for us, it's constant communication. You know, we fight about stuff like that and we try to work it out. And I, I, I think like, I want to do this for the long run. You know, I, I, I feel really passionate about this job and I want to be able to do it for a long time. And I don't, and I want my, my family even more, you know? So, so like, I, I, am not, I'm not, um, interested in giving up either of them, but, and that means that there's going to have to be compromises. So, you know, now we're hiring, hiring more people and stuff because both, both Neil and I have kids. And I think we just kind of have to take slightly different roles back in the day. Neil and I were on every shoot together. It was kind of like buddy trips everywhere. It was not vacation. It was always work, but it was like, you know, now we're rarely on shoots together because we hire another cameraman so that we're, you know, not both traveling four months a year or five months a year, you know, we can sort of divvy it up and get it closer to three. Um, so I think the challenge is, is like just being super cognizant. Um, I think you have to stand your ground for what's important to you, but it's also about respecting the people in your life. And, um, 
I don't pretend to be an expert in that. I've made my mistakes and I'm continue, I'll continue to make them, but I, I really do try to listen. Um, and, and like also, you know, I think setting yourself up so that, um, so that like leaving isn't such a burden is a really big thing. So like, you know, we could save a lot of money if we didn't pay for extra childcare, you know, we can make more money as a family, maybe live in a bigger house. But I think for us, it's like, well, we want to be able to do the things that we, that we want to do. So, you know, we pay a little extra for extra childcare. We, when I go on a trip, we pay even more to, to do that. And it's, it's just, I'm sure once I have twins and I have three girls in the house, you know, like I'll have to have, you know, 50 more conversations with my family to like get into a place where it's good and then things will change. Maybe I'll start traveling again. It's just, it's all going to change. Um, and I think I am excited about how things are going to change. Um, and, and, you know, I, I feel like, um, yeah, it's hard to be, it's hard. Yeah. It's hard to be like, I, I feel like I, I have met people who, just feel like they don't want anything to get in the way of their careers and stuff. And I just don't, I don't think that's a reality if, if you, if you legitimately want both. No, I think that's very well said. And it's a, it's a personal question and I appreciate you giving us your feelings on it. And I, I like to ask that because, you know, these are the unseen things. I mean, I've, I've seen relationships end over with these kind of careers. I've seen, you know, everything from people giving up their careers to be with their family. And it's so hard and it's a subjective thing. And it's, it comes down, as you say, I think mostly to communication and, and, and how you do it. You know, one of the things I'm doing with my family is trying to set up so we travel together. So a lot of the projects we do, we travel. We actually just bought a bus. We're, we're putting a, we're building our own RV from a shuttle awesome. bus to travel around and pull a trailer full of camera gear. And, and, you know, that's our way of dealing with it because it is something that, you know, we get into this industry because we love this industry. We love making wildlife films. We love wildlife. We love telling stories. And, and then, you know, we love our families. And when those two things collide, because suddenly each is taking so much time, there has to be some kind of compromise. And I think it's always nice to touch upon it because I think, you know, everyone in this industry is going to go through it. Certainly if they have kids, even if they don't have kids, you know, uh, just, just relationships in general can be taxed over this kind of, uh, this kind of work. So very much appreciate that. And exciting times. Uh, hey, exciting times. For sure. And, and I just want to, I, mean, I want to add also one of the things we always tell the, the, the fellows who are in these workshops that we, that we teach, you know, like I think, for a lot of people who are just breaking into the industry, a lot of them have like other jobs and they're like, they're just trying to get enough work to get it done. And I just feel like, I hate to say this cause it sounds really condescending, but like you're never going to have more time than you have right now, no matter like what stage of life you're in. Like, it's just like now is the time to kill yourself and get it done and use all your free time to develop. Obviously not if you don't want to, but if like you really want it, you've got to, you just got to put in the time early because once you start getting kids and stuff like, I, you know, my, my free time is like, I, I, I get to exercise for like a few minutes a day, you know, <laughs> you know, and then, if you're lucky, probably yeah, if you're lucky. Yeah. <laughs> I, I wake up now at like five in the morning to get a few hours of work done before the kids wake up and stuff. And, you know, so it's, it's, it's just, life gets really busy. And so I think putting in that time when, you know, you, you may think you're busy, but it's going to get busier. <laughs> That's just how it works for everybody. Absolutely. No, I mean, it, as you say, you think you're busy and then life changes and you realize, oh, you actually, you actually can do way more with the time you have. I do the same thing. Five o'clock up, 
I get an hour, maybe two if I'm lucky in to do what I need to do before any other interruptions. And then, then that's it. So, uh, no, it's well said. Um, you know, the time is now wherever you are because yeah, it's always, it always seems so hard just to make the decision to go for it. And, um, awesome. Let, Nate, let's talk about, um, advice for people. I mean, that, that is fantastic advice. I love that. Aside from the personal side of stuff, just filmmaking in general, if you were talking to your, say your media lab people, your students, or people who are listening to this, who are really thinking about, you know, wanting to, they, they want to take the plunge, but they're in that exact situation of, you know, they've got a, a full-time job, but they love making films with whatever camera gear they have. What other advice have you got in terms of, you know, just making this kind of dream a reality? Um, yeah, I've got a lot of, a lot of things that I would have told my younger self. Um, you know, I think most people who I see moving in this industry, they, they're talented already and they've got good instincts. Um, I feel like the thing that pushes most people that I've met into wanting to do this is they see that they can create something and, and it excites them. They get positive feedback from people around them and they're like, Hey, I, you know, maybe I could do this. And they, and they take that step and, and that's exactly where you want to be. Um, I think my mistake early on, not a mistake, it was just something I had to learn in my process was like this industry, it's very important to be talented, but the craft of it is it's endless. You, like you, you can, you need to learn so much in order to become a really seasoned filmmaker. And I don't pretend to be there yet. I, I a couple of years ago, maybe like three, three or four years ago, uh, one of my, one of, uh, one of the people I consider a mentor suggested I, I read uh, Robert McKee's book story. Have you read story before? I, I haven't. No. So yeah. So story. It's I a, will now. Yeah. You, you've got to read it. So he, it's a book, it's a book he wrote. It's mostly for, for screenwriters for like narrative films. Um, but it's, it's basically, it's, it's what makes stories work and he's gone through and he's analyzed all these different characteristics of elements of storytelling, some of which don't apply to documentary, but most of them do. And I remember reading this book and like, I couldn't believe I didn't understand a thing about story. I had my instincts cause I told a lot of stories. I'm always, you know, joking around with friends and telling stories like that, but like that has nothing to do with creating a documentary. It has nothing to do with good writing. And, I, I feel like I've become so much better as a storyteller having studied story. And I don't mean like studying, you know, like listening and watching lots of films. I mean like actually studying it from an academic point of view. I, I, I analyze things differently. I write things differently. So I'd highly recommend reading story. Um, and and um, he, he offers these seminars, like all the famous screenwriters have done his seminar. Uh, they're like, it's like, I don't know, something stupid, like, $10,000 to attend this seminar. So don't pay for it, but read the book. Um, and like, man, just so much amazing stuff about how you develop deep character. Um, you know, how you, how you, how you set up conflict, how you resolve conflict, how, how you, how you, you jump between scenes. It's just all this stuff that it's really craft. You can learn it. Um, and, and I think investing in learning the craft rather than just doing it because you love it is going to really make you a better storyteller. And I, 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 I feel like ever since I read that book, I sort of, gone into this industry with totally like eyes open, realizing like, I don't know anything uh, compared to all these people, you know, I, I, and I have so much to learn. Um, and, and, and it, it really made me excited. I was like, you know, I, I feel like I, I feel like I can grow. I, I can grow 
um, you know, in a huge way over the next however many years and continue to do so because um, there's so many talented people out there to learn from. So yeah, craft, I think is an important thing to, he's got a great quote in that book. It's like, um, I'm going to, I'm going to botch this. I always botch quotes, but it's like um, for, for talent without craft is like um, fuel without an engine. It burns wildly, but accomplishes nothing. And I, I, I really took that to heart because I think that, that that is the truth. You know, when you're, when you're early on, you make a few films, like a little short film or something that, that's beautiful and great. And then you try to work on like a bigger film project and you realize you're kind of lost and it doesn't turn out quite with the same sort of, I don't know, uh, essence that, that you want it to. And I think that's because, because you, you have the talent, but you don't have the craft yet. So really, really, I think investing in that is a good thing. That's a, that's a great piece of advice because um, it comes up all the time that, you know, a lot of people starting out, they tend to worry about gear. They tend to worry about quality, image, you know, framing, getting this beautiful thing going. But it's been said many a time that, um, you know, you can watch something that's been beautifully filmed, but if there's no story, it actually is unwatchable. And yet you go back and watch all of the great stories that have been told with archive footage that's maybe in black and white and grainy and, and terrible quality. And it's so watchable because it's telling a good story. So, um, yeah, fantastic piece of advice. Can you just give us the name of that book again one more time in the title? And I'll make sure I put it in the, in the resource section of the website. Yeah, it's called Story by Robert McKee. Story by Robert McKee. Great. I'll put a link yeah. to that. And also, yeah. Nate, where, where can people find you? So if people want to find you on, not your home address, but <laughs> if they want to find you on social media and follow your, uh, follow what you're doing and follow the films, where are they going to find you? Uh, so the place to find us is, uh, at, I think it's Instagram at Days Edge or Days Edge Productions on Facebook. Um, I'll admit we are, we are a very lazy social media company. We, we're, we're not very coordinated about it. Um, and, and, uh, sometimes I wish we were better at it. And then other times I'm like, I, I can't really invest, but we have, you know, we have stuff from, from, from projects that comes up here and there. And we, we try to post something every week or something. <laughs> hey, I'm glad. I'm really glad to hear you say that. Cause I'm terrible at it. It's hard. And I'm trying, I'm trying so hard to find a way to fit it in to everything because it seems these this day and age like you know it's a it's one of these things that can can grow everything but at the same time look at the time it takes to fit that in that becomes almost a full-time job on its own well we just we had um we had somebody come give a, a talk at, at our last um workshop all about building your brand and uh, she was talking about like how many hours a day her and some of her her, her clients and her partners spend on social media, it's like six hours a day to really build a brand. I just like, you know, I, I think, I think that like there are some people whose business needs that. That's just not our strategy. And like, I think we, we've, we've taken a different route for developing clients. Um, so I would highly recommend if you don't like social media, try to build your business without it. Um, but, but, you know, obviously it's fundamental. It can totally transform you as an individual, you know, you're, you totally transform your career. Some, for some people it's like, it's their entire career and you know, <laughs> so impressed with them. I, I don't have those skills. Yeah. I, I guess, as you say, it's de it depends on where you're going and how you're bringing work in. If it becomes fundamental <clears throat> to bringing your, 
the work in and filling the coffers, then that's something you've got to, you know, six hours is part of your work day and, and you've got to do that. But as you say, I mean, I certainly don't have six hours in my work day to be, you know, posting on, I have, my thumbs are too big as well. So, you yeah. know, I can't, I can't hit the buttons. <laughs> <laughs> Just tell us very quickly before you go, tell us on uh, about what you've, uh, you, the f last film you finished and also what you're working on now as much as you can tell us. Um, last film we finished, we, we just finished it this week. Um, uh, it's, it's a film about um, uh, this expedition that we, we, we took three high school kids who had never been in the outdoors on a hundred, roughly a hundred, I guess it was like an 80 mile trek through Florida's wilderness. So there are all these kids who are from Palm Beach County um, and they'd never really explored the outdoors. And then we took them on this, on this trek that was um, 70 miles of hiking, biking, kayaking, paddle boarding from the Loxahatchee, from the basically from the Everglades all the way out to the, to the Atlantic Ocean. Um, and so it's just about them sort of discovering the wilderness in their backyards for the first time. So it's a branded film. It'll come out on PBS in the next couple of months. So we just finished that. Excited to see that out the door. It's, it's, a, it's a, just a PBS half hour, and then it'll be like a 26-minute online film. Um, and then, you know, we're, we're very busy right now with, um, with a variety of different projects. I can talk about some of them. Um, can't talk about others. We're currently working on this broadcast hour about wildlife in Miami. Um, it's like a, a, it's like an urban wildlife sort of natural history film, um, which has been really fun to work on. It's, it's cool to see animals, um, you know, it changes your perspective a lot when you see animals really making a living in, in, uh, in this human made landscape. And it, it makes you rethink what, what, what role we play on the landscape. And um, so we've got, we've got that going on. Can, can um, you tell us some of the species in that? Are you allowed to say? Yeah, I can tell you, we're filming peacocks. So most of the animals, you know, Miami is an interesting place. It's got more invasive species than anywhere else in the United States. Um, it's got animals from every continent except for Antarctica, obviously. Um, and, and um, you know, it's got like something crazy, like 30 or 40 introduced species of lizards, a bunch of different snakes, obviously, tons and tons of birds from all over the place. And virtually all of the vegetation that you see anywhere you drive in Miami is invasive. It's exotic. And so uh, the story we're telling um, is, is really a story about how these animals from all over the world evolved to survive in, in these, you know, their, their homelands, but they've, they've, they've come to America uh, or we've brought them there or, or yeah, accidentally, or we, they, we've released them as pets and, and, and they've been forced to make their home. So it's kind of an immigrant story um, uh, about, about, about America. It's our, it's our little like uh, political statement about the, uh, you know, <laughs> in, in, in a wildlife sense. So it's been really fun. So yeah, we're telling stories about anolis lizards, peacocks, iguanas, a variety of monkeys, um, all, all sorts of stuff, um, you know, native and invasive and it's, it's been very fun so that that'll hopefully come out um sometime next year and then um i can't say much but we're working on a large pbs series i'll just say that much um and then um and then we've got a bunch of short films we're working on a, a series of shorts about jumping spiders um we just finished a film about private land um the private land and conservation across the west so 60 percent of the west is owned privately and um, there's this sort of battle between public and private land. People are like, you know, either selling off the private land or people who are on public land, uh, sorry, they're selling off the public land or they're, they're people who are on public land who are frustrated that people are coming and buying these large ranches and they can't use them. And I, I think it's a bunch of uh, arguments that are, are um, it's a false dichotomy. 
because um, the reality is that the wildlife that lives on this landscape, they have to survive in public, they have to survive in private. And so the stories about some of these ranches that are really doing amazing conservation work um, and basically have set up these, these pieces of land that are like national park kind of things um, and how, how, how those pieces of property are really benefiting the public lands around them. So that's, that's another little short project we will be, we'll be done with in the next couple of months. Um, and then I can't talk about a few other ones, but we've we got some cool projects. I'm, I'm really excited about the coming year and I'm terrified about trying to do it all with, with three, three little, little daughters. <laughs> so <laughs> we'll make it work, you know? Awesome. Well, yeah, yeah. exactly. You always do. We always do. You've got to find a way through. Got to find a way through. Sounds, sounds <laughs> fantastic. Well, and um, I, I'm not sure you mentioned the website, so you can go to day, is it daysedgeproductions.com? Daysedge.com. Days Edge. I think somebody stole Days Edge Productions. They didn't oh, okay. make a site out of it, but when we switched from Days Edge Productions to Days Edge, at least maybe maybe Corey has fixed this by now, but when we switched, some jerk bought the domain and then and then is asking for some absurd amount of money to get it back. So it's daysedge.com, but you okay. know, anyway. <laughs> Don't go to the other one. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I, I've had that happen in the past too. Yeah, there's always someone trying to make a buck somewhere. Yeah. Well, well, great. So we, we'll be able to find the films that you've been. I mean, that, that's probably a place that we can actually go. And I know you've got films on there. You've got your short films, your internet films. They're all on there for people to see. You've got an incredible showreel on there that I, I, I took a look at. And it's epic. Really gives a great idea of your, uh, you know, your production quality and the, sh the, the type of science that you guys are filming. Uh, keep it up, Nate. It's fantastic. You're doing an awesome job. And uh, I look forward to seeing you again at the next live meet when we can be at a festival yes, together again. Please. Yeah, thanks so much, Jake. I really appreciate it. Look forward to seeing you in person, man. Awesome. Thank you. Yeah. If you've enjoyed this episode of the Master Wildlife Filmmaking Podcast, then please leave a rating and a comment. And remember to subscribe to keep up to date with the series' future episodes. You can find out more information about wildlife filming at jakewillers.com. And if you're interested in starting a career in the wildlife filmmaking industry or being mentored to further your career, then please visit jakewillers.com forward slash mentorship. Thanks for listening.